following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. All right, good morning. Glad you're here with us this morning, and we're going to be looking uh, in Matthew chapter 21. Uh, Matthew chapter 21, starting in verse 18, so we'll read to start with. Uh, Matthew 21, 18 through 22, if you want to follow along as we read. And um, in the morning, as he was returning to the city, he, that is Jesus, became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Um, Honestly, uh, as we look at this passage, I have to honestly confess that I really don't like this passage <laughs> uh, for a couple of reasons. Uh, but mainly this whole thing about the whatevers, like whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive. And uh, I tried this once, actually I tried it many times, and it doesn't work. Anybody have that experience? You ask whatever, it says whatever, and you ask whatever, and it, you didn't get it, right? And... Um, uh, it is an astonishing promise, but I, I, I don't know uh, really any Christians who have prayed seriously for things that haven't felt frustrated that it doesn't really seem to work. And I think it's actually one of the reasons why oftentimes we are so prayerless, where we really don't pray, and we certainly don't pray the kind of prayers that I think God wants us to be praying, because... We just have this feeling that, you know, that's a great promise, it sounds all good, but it's just never worked out for me, right? Well, why doesn't it work? Uh, it, isn't, it is really an incredible promise. Um, and if Jesus really is the Son of God, if he really speaks with authority, then his promise has to be 100% true, right? Uh, the problem is not with the promise. Uh, but why does it seem that we've prayed so many times uh, earnestly and seriously, and it, it just hasn't it hasn't happened, right? And of course, you hear always the answer, well, you know, God does answer, and the answer was no. <laughs> but that's not actually what it says here. It doesn't say God will answer your prayer and it will be no. No, it says it will, God will give you whatever you ask. You will receive it, right? So this whole, well, God's answer was no, that, that doesn't count, right? That does not count here. So so how do we reconcile? How do we, what, what's wrong that we can't seem to make this work. And I really believe uh, uh, it needs to work. Right? It's important. In fact, I think it's vital to our Christian walk. So let's, let's kind of plunge into this, dive into this passage and see if we can figure out uh, how we can pray this kind of prayer that Jesus promises so boldly here. Um, uh, this, before we get into the prayer, though, we kind of need to get the back, backdrop. And in, in this this section, there's actually kind of two things going on. So we've got to deal with the first thing first, which is also important. Uh, and it's this 
uh, this account of Jesus being hungry, which is also a little troubling, that Jesus is, appears, is hungry, and uh, he goes to this tree, this poor, innocent, helpless tree that's just standing there, minding its own business. And when Jesus doesn't find breakfast on it, uh, he curses the tree and it dies, which also seems a bit harsh and also a bit out of character with Jesus, right? Um, and this kind of links to the passage last week where Jesus kind of goes off in the temple and chases people out, turns tables upside down. It seems a bit out of character, uh, and, and it's important that these stories go together, and they are around the temple. And so we see Jesus becoming angry and acting in some ways out of character from what we normally understand him uh, when he gets close to Jerusalem and when he gets close to the temple. And um, I think this is really uh, somewhat of a prophetic, symbolic act, just like chasing the people of the money changers and merchants out of the temple was. Uh, so this is. And so... Um, but, but, but here's what happens. Uh, Jesus has stayed uh, out in Bethany, and he's heading back towards Jerusalem. He's heading down the Mount of Olives into the city, and there's a lot of olive trees, also a lot of fig trees. Um, and uh, uh, it was spring, so we're, we're preparing now for Easter, right? We're getting ready for Lent. And so this was uh, just days before the Passover, days before he would go to the cross. So it's in the spring, probably March or April. And uh, it was actually too early for the fig trees to have leaves, much less fruit, right? They would just be starting to get their buds. So here was a really rare and exceptional tree that had already uh, got its leaves early. Uh, and unlike a lot of fruit trees uh, that we may think of, we think of the, the leaves coming first and then uh, much later the fruit comes along. But actually with the fig tree, the leaves and the fruit come at the same time. So if you see a tree that has leaves... Uh, you would expect to find fruit. Now, the fruit this time of year would have been uh, quite green and not, not all that tasty, but they said it could be eaten if you were hungry enough, and apparently Jesus was that hungry because he, he goes hoping to find some these green uh, figs and, I don't know, maybe something like eating green mangoes. You know, you put enough chili on it and fish sauce, it's all good. Uh, I don't know what Jesus had in mind here, but... Um, uh, he, but he expects to find fruit because there's leaves, right? So it's not that Jesus is being unfair that, well, of course, and in Mark it says, you know, it was out of season for figs, meaning they're not ripe yet, but not that there shouldn't be fruit. There should be fruit. And the mark of it is that the tree is full of leaves, right? So Jesus goes closer and coming on, on closer, he finds that uh, the tree has plenty of leaves, but zero fruit, uh, which would have meant that that there would be no fruit for the whole season for this tree. Somehow something went wrong. They, they maybe budded too early and it got a frost or something and the fruit dropped off and it would never produce fruit that year. So even if Jesus came back in May or June, it would be a completely fruitless tree. And so Jesus says, may no fruit ever come from you again. And it says immediately the, the tree withers and dies. Uh, Mark splits this into two accounts uh, in two days, which may have been a little more accurate. Matthew likes to compress things and just get to the point. Um, whether it shriveled up right before their eyes or was the next day, either way, it's pretty re- remarkable. Trees don't do that. They're not living one day and just never have fruit. The next day, poof, it's dead. Uh, and the, the disciples were astonished. They were marveled uh, at, at what happened. Right? It was, it was crazy. Like the tree's life is dead. Jesus cursed it. 
Um, uh, so so, so um, it's clear that Jesus uh, is not just angry at the tree, right? Um, uh, these events are, are very much uh, acted out parables. They're symbolic of what uh, Jesus sees coming, right? What he sees coming for Jerusalem, what he sees coming for the temple. And, and the point is, is this, short, short and sweet, the point is this, that um, the tree promised life, it indicated life, it showed that it was a healthy tree by all of its leaves, but on closer examination, uh, it was fruitless, right? And, and certainly as Jesus uh, uh, was, was getting close to Jerusalem, getting close to his own death, he was on a crash course, a collision path with the leadership of Israel, with the chief priests and the priests and the scribes and the Pharisees. And in just a, a, a few chapters, uh, Jesus is going to confront them full on. He's going to call them hypocrites. But what is a hypocrite? Well, a hypocrite is a pretender. Somebody who puts on a good show, who puts on a good appearance, but has no fruit in their life. And so Jesus is really acting out a parable here about, about the religious leaders. Their lives looked impressive. They looked uh, and, and put on a good show. And by all appearances, they were godly. But if you look closely at their life, they were void of fruit. And if their lives were void of fruit, they were literally lifeless, right? And they were without hope. And Jesus is giving a warning here that uh, no matter how, how good something looks, no matter how good its appearance is, if there is no fruit, uh, that is a person headed for judgment, and, and, and Jesus does judge the tree as a symbol of what's going to happen to these leaders who appear one way, but it's false. Right? Uh, it's also probably a warning to Israel as a whole. And certainly not all of Israel were unfaithful. Uh, we saw that the children were praising Jesus. We see that the, the, the group from Galilee is proclaiming Jesus as Messiah. Uh, there were pockets of faithful followers uh, among Israel. But as a whole... The nation did not receive Jesus. Uh, they did not welcome him as king, and certainly Jerusalem didn't. Uh, and so it's a warning to them of coming judgment. And really it's a warning to us. Right? It's a warning to us. Uh, the Christian life is not all about putting on a good show. Right? It's not about just looking good to others. To say, hey, look at me, I look pretty Christian. <laughs> you know, I dress, I wear the right clothes, I say the right things, I go to church. I, I, uh, I appear Christian, right? But on closer examination, if there's no fruit in our life, then something is seriously wrong. Uh, many, many of you, kind of the, the news of the day in the Christian world right now is uh, the report from Ravi Zacharias, right? And maybe some of you know of him and know of that account. A guy who apparently for many years was living a lie, right? Who was putting on appearances, but uh, inwardly living a very uh, fallen and broken life, right? Uh, and, and, uh, and so the point is not how impressive you look or sound or how convincing you are to others that you are something. What matters is the fruit that is coming out of your life that is being produced. Fruit is the evidence of genuine transformation to Christ's likeness, right? Uh, Things like obedience, holiness, and godly character. Or the fruit of the Spirit, 
Right? The fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. Right? That's a good word, kindness. Is our life characterized by kindness? Right? That's the fruit that Jesus is looking for. Goodness, uh, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Right? And that was one that Rabbi Zacharias certainly was missing. Self-control. Right? These are things that should characterize our life. Right? And that's how we will be judged, not by outward appearances, but by those fruits. So, so Jesus cursing the tree is a reminder that judgment is coming upon every person who is not showing, demonstrating the fruit of repentance. Right? Um, uh, so, so, so that's kind of the point of the victory, and, and Matthew doesn't really make a big deal of it, and it actually, he actually kind of jumps off in another direction, because the disciples uh, ask a different question. Like the di- disciples didn't ask, well, Jesus, what does this mean? Right? If they had asked it, maybe Jesus would have explained, well, you know, uh, watch out for those Pharisees, right? They're like fig trees that are full of leaves but no fruit. Uh, but instead, they ask a different question. Uh, they say, how is this possible? Right? How did the fig tree wither so quickly? Right? They want to know what, what is going on here. And they're, they're quite impressed that this is clearly a supernatural act. Uh, it's supernatural. This is not something that just happens every day. People just don't go telling trees to die, and they die. And so when this happened, the disciples were quite astonished. They marveled at it. And Jesus answered and said to them, Truly, okay, now here's any time in, in the Gospels when it says truly, it means pay close attention to this. Truly, I tell you, if you have faith and do not doubt, uh, you will not only do what's been done to the fig tree, but even greater things. Even if you say to this mountain, be lifted up and be thrown into the sea, it will happen. Uh, so, so Jesus kind of shifts gears and he begins talking about praying for the impossible. Praying for the impossible. Uh, and he, he gives this promise of what I call the promise of whatever you ask, right? The promise of whatever. Uh, Whatever, and this is his promise, whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Right? It's an amazing promise on Jesus' part. Um, that, uh, that, that Jesus calls us to a life where we have the power to pray and ask for impossible things. Um, uh, impossible things. And, and the idea here of whatever is actually a, a little bit of a difficult translation in Greek. Uh, it would literally be all, uh, all of as much as. So it's actually two words. Uh, whatever means all of as much as you ask. All of as much as. Or you could maybe translate it as everything no matter what. Everything no matter what. Okay, that's a pretty, like that's a blank, that's a pretty good blank check, right? Like, imagine if I said to you, hey, I've got this blank check. You can just go spend it on whatever you want, right? Would you like that? Anybody want a check like that? I want that. Or here's a credit card. Just go out and buy whatever you want. Sign me up, right? Sign me up. And you don't have to pay it back. Sign me up again. I want that credit card, right? And that's just kind of what Jesus is giving us here, a blank card to go out and pray for whatever you want. 
that ought to get us really excited, right? But it's just like yesterday, uh, my, my daughter Music uh, was shopping online, one of her favorite pastimes, and she found a free computer. Papa, there's a free computer. And I'm like, eh, no, no, nothing is free, right? Like, I'm too cynical and skeptical. Like, nobody just gives away nothing for free, right? And so we see this and we think, no, there's got to be some catch. There's some string attached. Like, you've got to sign up for some subscription for life or something, you know, right, to get this, right? And so we don't get that excited about it because we, we, we're sure there's some catch. Well, there is a catch, right? Uh, but the catch is not that he, that he doesn't mean what he says. Okay, the catch is not that, well, by whatever you ask, what I really meant is nothing like that. No, no. He means that we should have uh, the ability to pray for things with, that are so far out there that are so impossible that, uh, that, that we wouldn't even dream of asking. And yet God says, you can ask for those things and, and I will do them. And he, he stresses the point by this illustration. He says, even greater than a fig tree, like saying to this mountain, be thrown into the sea and it will happen. They were probably on the Mount of Olives and from the uh, one side of the Mount of Olives, you could actually see down to the Dead Sea. So maybe Jesus pointed to the mountain, you know, say to this mountain, be thrown into the Dead Sea and poof, it just goes, right? Uh, it was a common Jewish idiom. Jesus didn't really mean this literally, but it was a common idiom that, that was used to mean doing the impossible, like the extremely impossible. Like, and so Jesus is saying here, look, there's no limit to what you can ask God uh, in prayer. Uh, there's no limit. God can do the impossible, and we can actually ask him for the impossible with the expectation that he will, can, and will do it. Um, so that's this amazing promise. And it's it's an indication that that as followers of Christ, we, we really are called to a really extraordinary kind of life. Uh, a life that is marked by uh, at least some element of the impossible or even the supernatural. Right? Jesus doesn't call us to just an everyday ordinary life. Uh, he implies in this that, that we should be asking and that in fact it might be necessary to ask for very impossible things in following him. Um, um, and so we, we really should be asking the question, like how supernatural is my life? How much is my life characterized by impossible things? Uh, well, maybe you're like me, and I would say, well, my, my life is not all that impossible. My life seems actually all quite boring and quite possible. Like something's missing here, right? Something's missing. So, 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 so that's the promise. But uh, I know in my own life, so many times uh, I have prayed, as I shared, and it just didn't work, right? So, if we want to diagnose the problem, what what is wrong? What is missing here that that this doesn't seem to work? Well, as I said, it can't. The problem really cannot be with the promise, because Jesus gave it, and His word is true. Either. Either Jesus is God and we can count on him 100% and we can rely on all of his promises or he can't be God. Right? So uh, I believe Jesus is God. I believe he rose from the dead. I believe we can count on his word and his promises. The problem is not with the promise. But th- there is a little bit of a catch here, right? There, there's a condition. 
But he says, if, if, if you have faith and do not doubt, uh, you can, you can pray for and receive the impossible, right? So, uh, so this has something to do with faith. And the problem certainly, uh, must have to do, uh, with, uh, with our faith. I would also say that uh, he says that it's through believing prayer. Whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive. Um, seeing these kind of things happen is not possible apart from prayer. So if prayer is not a significant part of our life, that could be the first problem, right? If we're not praying, well, that's one problem, right? But it's not enough just to pray. Uh, many pray and pray diligently and pray often, but haven't seen these things happen. So... Um, so that key word, it must be believing prayer. It must be prayer that is moved and rooted and deeply grounded in faith. And so most likely, if there's a problem, it's going to be found here. Not in God's promise, but in our faith, in our confidence, in our belief that God will actually do what he said. Uh, so uh, clearly, we, we, we probably don't have the same understanding of faith that Jesus had. Right? And, and of course, we know this. We know that this is a requirement, so if you've tried this, I mean, I've tried this, where I was like, I, I really need this, I really want to pray for this, and so I, I try to bulk up my faith muscles, you know, and I strain faith, like, faith, right? And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to faith this into happening, right? But uh, clearly, I don't understand faith, and we don't understand faith, so... So what, what is this faith that moves mountains? What, what is it? How would we define it or describe this faith that can move mountains? Uh, well, it's important to understand that there are many kinds of counterfeit faiths. Okay, faiths that seem like faith, kind of like that fig tree. They seem like they should work, but they don't produce fruit. So it's not real faith, right? Um, so, so what are some, and I'm not going to go into all of them necessarily, but here are some, I think, ways that we... We misunderstand faith. And the first is this idea that faith is some kind of blind thing. You ever heard people talk about blind faith? You have to have blind faith, right? Uh, and, and this uh, really has the idea that uh, confidence by itself is enough. That actually faith itself is the power to accomplish something. And then this is especially true among kind of the prosperity gospel movement, where it's all about just the faith. And if you have the faith, whatever that is, enough of it, faith itself can move mountains. But actually, uh, it doesn't really work that way. Um, uh, it's not enough to have confidence in confidence itself. Okay, that's not true faith. Faith must have confidence in something, in some power beyond itself. Um, so, so some people confuse faith with optimism. Like some people just are confident that things will work out, right? That's optimism. I am not one of those people, right? But my wife is. Like those, those people who just are confident, they just have this confidence. Um, it's all by itself. It's just confidence. They're not confident in anything other than the fact that they're, they're confident that they're confident. Right? Their confidence is in their confidence. And they're convinced that because they're confident, it's just going to work out, right? And when you try to explain like reason and like reality to them, well, you're just the devil, right? Uh, well, uh, it's good to be confident, and the, the truth is that um, there are people out there who are who are confident leaders, 
And, and, and it's actually good to have leaders who are confident. People like following confident leaders. And sometimes people who just believe it's going to happen inspire um, people to try things they would never try. And sometimes it works, right? So you see this in sports a lot of times. They go out there with this confidence, and they just rise to a new level because of their confidence. Right? I remember my, my 90-some-year-old grandma, when I was a little, little boy, uh, I wasn't very old, uh, she, she taught me a great lesson about how confidence works. And we were eating lunch one day, and, and she had all kinds of good things we were eating, and there was cottage cheese and there was gravy. And she suggested that I put, I put the gravy on my cottage cheese. And I thought, ooh, gravy on cottage cheese? That sounds horrible. But she said it with such confidence. And I said, Grandma, I don't think you can do that. And she said with absolute confidence, oh, people do it all the time. This is like a normal thing. And she was just so confident. And I just believed her. So I put gravy on my cottage cheese. And I tasted it. I was like, ah, I don't know if I like it or not. I told her, well, it's okay. And she said, well, I wouldn't know. I've never tried it. <laughs> and she kind of looked at me like, like only an idiot would. Right? And I, like, she tricked me. Right? But she was so confident. And the truth is, you can be confident and be totally wrong, right? And, and, the, and the reality is that confidence in itself doesn't really have uh, all that much power. It does have some power, like I said. It does sometimes inspire people to try things. But confidence cannot do the impossible. That tree didn't die because Jesus was confident, right? Jesus' confidence, bold confidence, didn't kill the tree. Right? It, it takes more than that. There are serious limits to how far this blind faith or this blind optimism or confidence can go. Right? It's not just positive thinking. It's not just willing something to happen. And faith is not just a certain belief that things are true. Like I can believe this statement is true, but that in itself is not faith. Right? Uh, there's also a, a problem that... Uh, we have faith uh, that has that misunderstands. Okay, we, are, we realize that faith has to have an object, so we know that our faith needs to be rooted in God. Only God can make things happen, right? Only God has the power. Our faith does not have power. God has power, uh, but sometimes our faith is off because we uh, we we misunderstand who God is and what He's about, right? So our faith is in God, but we have a wrong idea about who He is and how He works. Uh, so, so that's not faith. But what faith is, that faith is an unwavering confidence in God. There's an absolute confidence that God is able. Uh, we see that in Hebrews 11.1, 1, very famous verse on faith. Now faith is the assurance. Okay, assurance is this idea of confidence. The assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. Okay, those two words, assurance, conviction, have this idea of a confidence, a, a certainty uh, that God can do what he's promised. Uh, it's rooted in him. So it goes on to say in, in Hebrews 11.6, Without faith it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe, that is they must have confidence, that he exists, that he's real, and that he rewards those who seek him. So that's the, that's the basis of faith, is we root our faith in this confidence that God is real, 
He created the universe and that he actually wants to answer our prayer, that he wants to reward those who seek him. So the power is in what God can do, not in what faith can do. Right? That's, that's, that's how this works. Um, God alone can move mountains. Right? He's, he alone has power to do that. Faith is simply the means by which we tap into or exercise God's power in our life. Um, but to say that faith is just confidence in God would, would be highly uh, oversimplifying what faith really is. And I think that's where we get in trouble. Right? We get this idea, well, if I just have enough confidence in God, uh, this is going to work. But actually, when you look through the whole Council of Scripture, which we don't have time to do all of, uh, but we're going we're, we're to give a, a good survey, faith is actually a much more complicated thing than we may realize. It's much broader and much more involved than just simple confidence. It is confidence in God, but there's just a lot more to it. Um, and, and it's important to understand that we cannot just will faith. That is, decide I'm going to have more faith. So I might convince you this morning, and I hope I do, that, that, that we can have this kind of access to God in prayer and that God can do great things through our prayers. And you could go out this morning and say, I decide I'm going to have faith. All right? Well, it's just not that simple. It's just not that simple. Um, contrary to every Santa Claus movie, which says, you know, if you just believe enough, Santa Claus becomes real. Okay, has that actually worked for anybody? Have you created Santa Claus? Anybody? Anybody? Okay, now, if you're out there and you really do believe in Santa Claus, I'm sorry, because I just probably am going to ruin this for you, but all of your belief does not make him real, right? right? You cannot will things into existence or even will belief. It doesn't work that way. Uh, we do not have the power to grow a conviction about anything. Right? It's beyond us. Um, we, we cannot create faith by sheer willpower. Right? So if you're going to go out today and say, "Well, I'm just going to, I'm just going to, I'm going to start believing," good luck. Okay, good luck. Uh, but we can't will it. But the Bible's clear that there are things we can do to step more into faith. So let me give you. Um, ten steps to greater faith. Okay, ten steps. Uh, I think there's a lot more than that, but, but here's ten that gives us a good start. And we don't have time to go to these in great detail. We have about ten minutes to do ten steps. This is one minute per step. Uh, so I'm going to kind of go through these. Uh, go home and meditate on these steps, right? Think these through. But it's an action plan for how you can increase faith, how you can get greater faith and really possess a real faith that... Uh, that works, that, that we'll see uh, answers the prayer for impossible things. Uh, first step, uh, depend on God alone. Depend on God alone. Um, we cannot will faith. We cannot create faith. We cannot generate faith. The amazing thing is that faith itself has to come from outside of us. And where does it come from? Well, ultimately it comes from God, right? God is the one who will give us faith. Um, uh, I didn't write down the passage, so I don't remember the reference, but, uh, but it says that, uh, that God himself uh, gives us a measure of faith. Right? Uh, faith is, is understanding who God is, that he exists, that he is willing and able to bless those who seek him, 
And so faith comes from him. And, and, and so we start the journey of faith by depending on God. Independence is the opposite of faith. And the more we are trying to do things in our own strength and our own power, even creating faith by our own will, we're actually undermining faith. Faith begins by depending on him. That I cannot do it by myself and that I need him. And so maybe the first step uh, in, in growing faith is asking God, God, I don't have faith. Please uh, help my unbelief, as the man says in the gospel. Second step, uh, stand in the gospel. Now, this may not seem like this connects with faith, but the gospel is the reality and truth that we sin, we've rebelled against God, and we uh, are under his wrath and judgment. And our only hope for salvation is what God has provided in, in the death of Jesus and in his blood, that we have salvation in Christ. Uh, and Ephesians 2 tells us that what? Uh, by faith, we have been saved through grace. Right? Uh, faith is the acknowledgement that our salvation begins and ends as a free gift of God that he has done for us. Right? That's what dependence on God is. It's realizing how much we need him and that our whole salvation is a gift of God. That it is not of works. It is not something we do. It is uh, a gift of God, not of ourselves that we should boast. Right? Um, and so faith it has to be rooted deeply in the gospel, in this, save, we, we even call it saving faith. Right? And faith can't be separated from the work of God's salvation in our life. They are deeply connected the work of God saving us and the work of us trusting and believing him are deeply connected. Um, but we're not just saved. Uh, saving doesn't just mean that God takes away our sin. He does that. But it's more than that. It's restoring us to a proper relationship with God. And so faith is ultimately a walk with God, a relationship with him. And if you want to really have faith, you cannot have faith apart from Knowing God and being in a deep, close, intimate, personal relationship with God. Uh, faith, uh, and through the whole, whole Old Testament, faith is really defined and described as a covenant relationship. Abraham was justified. He was declared righteous by faith. And that was through his covenant relationship with God, where God met him and drew him into this relationship where Abraham walked with God, Moses walked with God, David walked with God. If you don't have a daily walk with God, a daily relationship with God, you will not have this kind of powerful faith. Right? And those who have this kind of faith are people who are deeply connected with God in relationship. And so this was easy for Jesus because he was deeply connected with the Father. Right? And he didn't have to pray for hours for this tree. And, you know, sometimes I think prayer works by my effort, by my long-windedness. Like if I pray three or four hours for this tree, and I get down and I, like, really, like, sweat prayer, right, that it's going to do something. Jesus just said, curse, curse you, tree. Boom, it's, it's done, right? Uh, it wasn't a long prayer. Uh, in fact, we may have kind of missed the whole prayer part of it. Uh, but he had that kind of power 
out of his relationship with the Father. It's interesting, going back to Hebrews 11.6, it says, let me say it again, and without faith it is impossible to please him. For what? For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who diligently seek him. Faith is a heart that wants to draw near to God. If we have no interest in drawing near to God and knowing him, uh, we, are, we are a tree full of leaves with no fruit. Right? Um, I don't know what step we're on. I think step four. Uh, seek uh, God's glory and his kingdom. So here's the thing. Once you start entering into a relationship with God, you start walking with him, you start coming to find out who he is and what he's like, you find out that God is a God of incredible glory and majesty and beauty. He is mighty and powerful. He is exalted on high. Uh, He is a God who in his grace has saved us and poured out his love and kindness on us. And all of a sudden, uh, the whole orientation of our life is shifted away from me and myself and starts focusing on God and his glory and his kingdom. Um, and, and, and faith is, is, is focused on God's glory, not mine. And I think this is one of the big problems of our prayers. We pray too much about my selfish needs with far too little concern about God's glory. Now, can we pray for our own needs? Absolutely. Should we pray for our own needs? Absolutely. Right? But, but our needs and my wants are not the highest goal of prayer. And if I've made my needs and wants the highest priority of prayer, I'm no longer praying prayers of faith. I'm praying selfishness. And selfishness and faith don't go together. Right? Uh, but when we start living for God's glory... And we see how our needs and and seeing our needs met uh, contribute to his glory. Uh, Prayer becomes powerful. Look in the Psalms. David prayed this often. God, zap my enemies. Not because I want it, because it's going to make you look good. Uh, He's kind of got that one down. right? Pray uh, for our needs, but pray with the highest call for his glory. Number five, commit to God's mission. Okay, uh, God is a God of purpose. He has a mission in the world. And that, that purpose and that mission uh, came about before he created a single molecule. Right? He spoke it, the world into being, and, and Scripture is clear that his purpose was laid out before the foundation of the world. Right? And, and, and here's the thing, God is doing everything according to that purpose and mission and plan to see his name glorified, to see his salvation worked out. Right? Um, when we commit to his mission, right? when we join God in his purpose and in his plan, um, it's going to change radically what we pray for. Because we're going to stop praying for my mission and my plan, and we're going to start being very concerned about God's mission and his plan. And that's going to shape what we pray for. And here's the thing. I mean, I know this is true. When we pray, God, may your will be done, uh, God's going to answer that every single time, right? Um, when we pray, God, uh, would you save people in Thailand? Does God want to save people in Thailand? Absolutely. Is God going to answer that prayer? Absolutely. Is he going to move mountains to do it? Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. So commit to his mission. 
as we commit to his mission, we will find that we need to start laying down our own will and our own agenda. Right? It, it can't work this way. We can't commit to God's mission and my mission. Right? And like some days I do what God wants and other days I do what I want. Okay, that's what I do. <laughs> but that doesn't actually work. Right? Uh, I, can't, I can't want God's mission, which is headed that direction, because my mission is, is headed in a very different direction. So I need to lay down my own will and my own agenda, which means that ultimately I need to learn to walk in obedience. And here's some, a, a, a mind-boggling verse. Okay, A lot of us think that faith and obedience are somehow two very different things, but actually faith is obedience. Faith is obedience. Romans 1.5, through whom we have uh, received grace and apostleship, to bring about the obedience of faith. Paul says his mission for the gospel was to, to help bring about the obedience of faith. It's also illustrated in First Chronicles with Saul. Uh, we know that Saul lost the kingdom because he was disobedient. But notice what it, how it describes it in First Chronicles 10. So Saul died for his breach of faith. He broke faith with the Lord in that he did not keep the command of the Lord. Right? You cannot have faith and be disobedient. Right? Faith re- requires and demands obedience. So we need to be praying and urgently seeking to know God's will and his mission and his purpose. And, and seek to walk in, uh, in his plan. Walk in obedience to him. So if we're not seeing prayer answered, a good question to ask is, am I really being obedient? Am I really yielding and laying down my own plans and my own mission and my own goals? And am I really uh, living for God's mission? Uh, Next step. Uh, We need to understand the character and promises of God. Uh, The reality is God can do anything, but God will never act contrary to his own character or purpose, right? Uh, and that means God is good, God is loving, and God wants the ultimate good for you and I. So when we ask for something that God knows is not really that good for us, is he going to give it to us? Jesus uses a parable, if, uh, if a child comes in and asks his father for bread, would you give him a snake? Would you do that? Well, of course not, because that would not be good for them, right? Uh, sometimes we ask for snakes and God gives us bread and we get angry, right? Right? God does not act contrary to his own character or his own nature or his own goodness. Um, He also uh, does not work outside of his promises. And God has promised some incredible things in Scripture. And I, I guarantee that if you pray God's promises, you will never be disappointed, right? Because he keeps his promises. Uh, but that requires the next step, that we dig into the Word. You cannot know God's character and you can't know His promises if you don't spend significant time in His Word discovering what those things are. Right? So Romans 10.17 says, So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ. Right? We need to know who God is through His Word and what His promises are. Um, I think we're up to number nine. We're almost there. Focus on God, not me. Next step, focus on God, not me. 
I, I, I fear that we have made prayer far too self-centered. I kind of talked about that already. But, but just think about our motivation for praying. How motivated are you for praying? Well, here's the thing. What if I told you that uh, if, if you prayed for a million dollars, absolutely, I could guarantee God would give you a million dollars. Would you pray for a million dollars? Yeah, right? You would, right? Now, uh, would you believe that it's absolutely true? Eh, maybe not. Maybe you think, well, I don't think Tim knows what he's talking about. But let's say this. Let's say I say, okay, well, maybe you don't believe God will do it. But here's the thing. I, I have a million dollars. And if you pray for uh, five years straight, because I want this to cost you something, right? If you pray for five years straight without missing a single day, I'll give you a million dollars. And we wrote up a contract, and I put the money in a bank so you knew it was there. And it's like, this is guaranteed. You just have to pray every day for five years without missing a single day, and a million dollars is yours. Would you do it? Raise your hand. Well, of course you would. If you don't, man, there's something wrong with you, right? You would do it. And you would do it with, with a lot of motivation. Like you, end up, you, know, you tell your, 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 your wife or your friend or whoever, look, if I end up in the, in, in the hospital in a coma, you wake me up. You make sure I wake up and pray. Like, because like, a million dollars is a stake here, right? You've got to make this happen. You would be motivated. Like, if you started to kind of lose motivation, all you'd have to start thinking about, a million dollars, man, this is the house I would buy, and this is, this is the trips I would take, this is where I would go. I'm praying, right? You would be motivated. Uh, but, but, here's, but, but let's change the scenario a little bit. I'm going to give you a million dollars. You've got to pray five years. But here's the thing. I'm actually not going to give it to you. I'm going to give it to a missionary in some country that you don't know to plant churches and evangelize and feed the poor. But it depends on your prayer. If you don't pray every day for five years, they won't get it. Would you be as motivated? Right? If you're in a coma, it's like, no, don't wake me up out of the coma. All right? It's not worth it. Right? Honestly, would you be as motivated? You see, I think we want prayer to be about me, and we would be motivated if I got something out of it. But, but do we really care about God's glory? Do we really care about his passion for lost people in the world? Like if we were as motivated for his glory and his kingdom, instead of just our own selfish pursuits, maybe we would more, be more earnest in prayer and, and, and more diligent in faith. Last step, uh, kind of along the same line, prayer is not optional. Okay, for the Christian, prayer is not optional. It is vital for a fruit-filled life. Because the fruit that is required comes about, it is impossible. Okay, the fruit that God wants to see in your life is impossible. And you need to be praying for these things. Uh, and the problem is, is this, this, either God is powerful enough to do this, right, or he's not. And so we've got to settle that one first. Okay, God is powerful enough. He can do this. But then there comes another problem. If God is powerful enough to do this, why does he need me to ask? Why doesn't he just do it? Right? Why doesn't he just do it? And a lot of times we think, well, God's going to carry out his mission. He's going to fulfill his purpose. And it really doesn't matter if I pray or not. But that is a lie of Satan. And the reality is that God's plan is to work through you and through your prayers. You are participants 
in his work. And I don't know why or how, and I don't understand that God sent it this way, but he has chosen not to work apart from our prayerful participation and obedience. Uh, I mean, look at the tree, the fig tree. Uh, apparently it was God's purpose and mission to use this tree as, a, as an object lesson for his judgment, and uh, it was his plan to, to kill this tree, right? But would it have worked if Jesus hadn't done it? They'll just say, well, God could do it without Jesus, so Jesus ignores the tree, and the next day it just dies, and it's just, oh, that's a coincidence, right? It would, wouldn't mean much, right? It required Jesus cursing it. It required Jesus' participation and verbally and publicly praying against that tree for it all to make sense, right? The same thing is true in our life. Uh, God wants to do great things, but it doesn't make sense we don't see it unless we are prayerfully participating. This last week, they put a new Mars lander on Mars, right? Anybody see that? Pretty cool. Great piece of technology and pretty impressive. And I watched the whole thing and like that's cool. And when it got done, when it landed, I was like, yeah, that's kind of cool. Wow, right? But the people who were in the control room, when it landed, what did they do? They start screaming, yay! I mean, this whole out- outburst of celebration, what was the difference between my reaction and their reaction? Well, I was not behind the scenes seeing all the obstacles, all the difficulties, all the challenges to make that possible. Those people were, right? They were deeply involved in what was going on. They were participating, and, and, and they were involved behind the scenes, and they knew how difficult it was. Right? That's what prayer does, right? That's why we pray for the impossible, because we, we behind the scenes see how difficult this is. So that when it happens, we don't just go, oh, that's nice. No, we celebrate. Wow. Like the disciples. We marvel at the, at the hand of God. And we celebrate him. Let's close with this last thought. When we do not get whatever we ask, it is not because prayer doesn't work. It, it's a sign that our faith is not working. Right? It's a sign that our faith is not what it should be. And, the, and, and we shouldn't give up. Right? We shouldn't stop praying. But we, we need to start working on faith. It means we need to start working on Let's pray. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.